I invite you to turn with me in the Bible to Acts chapter 4, book of Acts, in the Pew Bible, page 1160. We continue with our series of sermons on the book of Acts. Last time we dealt with chapter 3, the healing of the lame beggar, and the story really continues. Chapter 4, verse 1, and we'll cover the first 22 verses today. And as they were speaking to the people, and that would be Peter and John, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than forty years old." So far, our text, in response to the preaching, we'll sing again from Psalm 118, particularly including that quote that Peter makes use of. He alludes to it at the very least about the stone that the builders rejected. 
That comes from Psalm 118, and we find it in stanza 6 in the Book of Praise version. Actually, I misspoke. We will sing 118, but not till after the Nicene Creed. So after the service, after the sermon, we'll sing Psalm 31, the stanzas 11 through 14. Brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus our Lord, the last time in Acts 3, we saw how Luke tells us the story there of how King Jesus with incredible grace, sends forth the gospel of salvation for a second time or another time to his stubborn people, the Jews. The story centers in Jerusalem. It will center in Jerusalem for the next while in the book of Acts. In fact, we won't leave the city of Jerusalem until Acts chapter 8. And in these chapters, starting in our text, chapter 4, we begin to see opposition to the gospel mounting, particularly among the Jews, and then especially among the ruling authorities of the Jews, among the the council, what is sometimes called the Sanhedrin. In the NIV, it's just translated as Sanhedrin, so we probably know it by that name just as well. And there's, there's a, a tension building, and you can feel a showdown coming on. You may recall that this Jewish Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, was a, a unique governing body for the Jews. It governed both the civil and ecclesiastical matters. As leaders of Israel, the Sanhedrin had earlier led the way in persecuting Jesus while He was on earth. And as Acts unfolds, we'll see the same body, the same Jewish council take the lead in persecuting the followers of Jesus, starting with the apostles. Luke zeroes in on the apostles in chapters 4 and 5 in particular, but even a little further. The apostles, they have a a special place in the work of King Jesus. You recall that the Lord Jesus chose 12 to be designated apostles. He held them close. He spent three years walking with them, training them, teaching them to carry on His work once He would have ascended. And the number 12 is not arbitrary. It's not an accident. These 12 apostles are meant to lead the 12 tribes of Israel. They are to be the foundation stones of Christ's temple that He's building, His church, His restored Israel. Luke has already told us that this is the Lord's intention when in Luke 22, He records the Lord Jesus speaking to His 12 disciples. He says, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and here it comes, and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So you twelve 
are going to judge the 12 tribes of Israel. The Lord Jesus is equating His church with the 12 tribes of Israel. In other words, the church is the new Israel, the restored Israel. So King Jesus, now on the throne in heaven, He continues to gather in this restored and being restored Israel. And the question comes about who is going to lead, who is going to rule, who is going to have authority over and judge this new Israel. It won't be the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem, but it will be the apostles sent out by Christ. That's the basic issue unfolding in the next couple of chapters, and the Holy Spirit makes this clear through this showdown. The leaders of old Israel, they approach and they begin their attack against the leaders of new Israel. And King Jesus then uses that attack, uses that persecution to actually equip and enable and, and establish His chosen apostles as the genuine rulers of His people. So that'll be our focus this afternoon as I bring you this Word of God. King Jesus equips the leaders of new Israel. We'll see that He gives them bold preaching and fearless conviction. Well, as I mentioned, chapter 4 is just the continuous, uh, continuing story of chapter 3 where the two lead apostles, Peter and John, had healed a man born lame. He was at the temple gate called Beautiful. That's where they found him. That's where they healed him. And that incident itself shows already a key difference in the leadership between old Israel and new Israel. For the leaders of the Sanhedrin, the leaders of the, the council, they gave no thought to and they had no concern for this lame beggar lying right in front of their gates right in front of their expensive gates of luxury, you recall. The beautiful gate was the most expensive of all the gates. The Sanhedrin let this man beg there every day. They never lifted a finger to help him. And even in this story, they show no regard for the fact that he's healed. There's no rejoicing over his healing. But Jesus' apostles... They not only pay attention to the beggar, but they give him the very best that they have to give, the healing power of the Lord. And so it comes to light by way of contrast. The chief priests, they, they regularly use the people for their own benefit, but the apostles, they are there to serve the people for the people's benefit. And that really is a key characteristic of the true Israel of God, of the restored people, of the genuine church of Christ. Christian leaders, they serve, they love and assist. Christian office bearers don't ignore the little guy who's in need, but they reach out and exercise care and help. Just like Christian parents look to the best interests of their child and don't use their children, but provide for their children. Like Jesus said, He came not to be served, but to serve, same with those who follow after Him. So, the two leading apostles, Peter and John, 
They've done a good need, a deed. They've done it in the name of Jesus. And the crowd of people gathered there in Solomon's portico. And Solomon's portico, by the way, is just a, a section down one of the longer walls of the temple courtyard. A very long section had uh, columns all the way down that section, so there was a, a roof overhanging it. It would be a great place to hang out in the shade of the day, or if it happened to be raining, didn't happen that much in that country. But it was a place where people would naturally gather after they had worshipped in the temple, and it was a place where the rabbis would naturally preach and teach. Jesus did it, and now the apostles are there in Solomon's colonnade. And a crowd has gathered there of some thousands, and the crowd is utterly amazed and they're praising God for this miracle of restoration. And yet, not everybody is happy about what has taken place, for verse 1 of our text reads like a cold shower. We read there, and as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Now, we've got to understand that's not a random event that this group comes upon the apostles. The Jewish leaders aren't just taking a stroll through the temple courts. No, they had heard, they couldn't have failed to have heard all the brouhaha caused by the healing. They had heard the singing and the praising of, of the large crowds echoing through the temple buildings. They had seen the thousands flocking over to Peter and John, hanging on their every word in the, the colonnade area, the, the, the portico area, and they didn't like it one bit. So they've come over. They've made a beeline to this group. They've come over to put a stop to whatever's going on. Actually, they knew what was going on. Luke tells us they were greatly annoyed. Why? That Peter and John were teaching and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And we know from earlier in the gospel of Luke that the Sadducees, who are part of this, this Jewish leadership, the Sadducees, they didn't believe in any resurrection. Least of all would they believe in a resurrection of the dead in Jesus' name. They didn't believe in Jesus or the resurrection. And so without any questioning, without any further investigation, the first thing the leaders do is arrest Peter and John. You'll notice the reference to the captain of the temple. Well, that fellow was the head of security. He actually had a, a police force under his command, and anybody dis causing a disturbance could be apprehended just by his command. And who is in charge of the temple captain? Well, it's the priests who are in charge of him, and ultimately the high priest who served as the president of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council. Well, let me just sketch for you a little bit more about this Sanhedrin, for as we go through Acts, we'll see this body a fair bit. It's not important to understand what we can understand about this council. At this time in Israel's history, this was the supreme governing body over the Jewish people, that is, under the Roman authorities. 
It was a group of about 70 men, as far as the historians know, 70 men plus its president. In the preceding couple of hundred years, once it had been clear that uh, the line of David was, was basically petered out, certain other leaders came in to fill the void, leaders from the priests, leaders from the elders, leaders from among the scribes. And this group of leaders, they were based out of the temple. They, they always had a special focus on the temple as the center of Israel's life. But it also ruled the Sanhedrin. It also ruled on everything pertaining to the laws of Moses. That's why it was a civil authority as well as a church authority. In certain cases, the Sanhedrin could even sentence a person to death like they will do in Acts chapter 7 to Stephen. They drag him out of the court and they stone him to death. The Sanhedrin was made up of three main groups. There were the chief priests, there were the elders, and there were the scribes. The chief priests, and then especially the high priest, held the most authority and influence in the Sanhedrin, and virtually all of the priests, they were Sadducees, which are mentioned here in verse 1. And the Sadducees, they had their own particular slant on, on the Jewish faith. But different from the Sadducees were the Pharisees. The Pharisees were mostly from among the scribes. They were a smaller group in number than the Sadducees, but they were there. You can think of Nicodemus the Pharisee. We read about him in John's Gospel. In Luke will tell us in chapter 5 of Acts about Gamaliel the Pharisee. So the Sadducees and the Pharisees, they clashed on a lot of points of Jewish law and Jewish understanding of the laws of Moses, but on one thing they could always agree, they hated Jesus. All through the Gospels, we see the Pharisees and the Sadducees opposing Jesus. And Peter and John knew this. Put yourself in their shoes for just a moment, okay? So the, the Sadducees and the chief priests approach you there in the temple courts. It was only two or three months earlier that Peter and John had stood in the same room as these same men. The very same Sanhedrin, at least a good part of it, was gathered at the high priest's house as they had begun the trial of Jesus, Luke 22. John, it says in John's gospel that, that the apostle John was even personally known to the high priest. And if you go back to those three months, that, that occasion three months earlier, that was not Peter and John's finest hour, was it? Neither of them had stood with Jesus. Neither of them had spoken up in Jesus' defense. Three months earlier, they had been frightened for their lives. They stuck to the shadows behind the firelight. They stayed silent as they could. And Peter even had to loudly deny three times that he even knew Jesus. So tell me, brothers and sisters, if, if you were Peter and John, now being confronted by the same Jewish leaders who had condemned Jesus to death only months earlier, and now they're arresting you, what would you do? What would you be feeling? What would you be thinking?
we can worry about that sort of thing at times, can't we? Maybe we don't fear the arrest, being arrested at this point, but when we think of interacting with people about the gospel, when we imagine people in our lives asking questions about our faith, about our religion, maybe it's somebody at work or somebody at the soccer field or at college or neighbors down the street, we can wonder what would we say in response to their questions. What if they ask me a question I don't know the answer to? We might even feel apprehensive. We might feel frightened of a negative reaction. What if they get mad at me? What if they, what if they don't like me after that? Well, then we need to hear the same encouraging command and promise that Jesus gave to these apostles, for He knew in advance that they would face opposition. And even, as we read in Luke, they, they would be delivered up to the Jewish authorities. He mentioned that they'd be put in front of synagogues. And then Jesus said in, in Luke chapter 21, this will be your opportunity to bear witness to me, Jesus. Settle it, therefore, in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth, and I will give you wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. Isn't that beautiful? Apostles, don't worry about what you're going to say. I will be with you. I will give you the words in your hour of need. Christians in Ancaster Church, don't worry. Don't be frightened. Don't be dismayed about what challenges you could face beyond your capability, for guess what? I am with you too. My Spirit lives in you, same as it did in the apostles. And I will surely give you the words to say in your hour of need, do not worry. Peter and John have indeed been affected by the Lord Jesus in their lives. Look at how different they are now that Christ is on the throne and the Spirit of Christ is in their hearts. Verse 8 even specifies, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, see, that's King Jesus. He has not left them on their own. He's there in His Spirit speaking His words through them. For the words that these men speak, they sound very little like Peter of three months earlier, but very much like the voice of authority, the voice of calm wisdom that King Jesus displayed even on the earth. And notice how they respond to the Sanhedrin. They do not try to offer up a defense that will be acceptable to the authorities. They do not try to ameliorate the authorities. They do not try to talk their way out of prison or, or, or out of any form of punishment or soften their own circumstances. No, they, they respectfully address these leaders, yes, but they boldly proclaim Jesus as the one thing needful also to the Sanhedrin. Peter comes right to the point in verse 10, let it be known to all of you, you leaders, and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by Him this man is standing before you well. They preach Jesus boldly. 
in a situation where they have a lot of personal danger. This is Jesus at work in them, equipping them for their task. Faithful preachers are to be bold preachers. And I wonder, brothers and sisters, do you pray? Do you pray for your minister's boldness in preaching? For all preachers of the gospel to do so boldly. To preach the word without fear of consequence. The boldness of Peter in our text is not a one-off. All throughout Acts, he and every preacher of the gospel, they are always bold, they are forthright, they are honest, they are sincere, and they do not pay attention to the consequences. And it doesn't matter if they're speaking to friends or enemies, Jew or Gentile, a gathering of believers or unbelievers. And it doesn't matter what the subject matter is, so long as it is the Word of God, so long as it is the will of King Jesus, that it must be proclaimed without fear of reprisals or reactions. And you know, beloved, that's far from easy to do. That's why I ask you, please, pray for me. Pray that I would be bold. Brother Alkama in the council room just before we came out. That's what he did. Most of the elders do. Most of the time, I need that. I need it from all of you because there's a temptation I face and every preacher faces regularly, and the temptation is this, to soft-pedal the hard edges of the gospel, to avoid subjects that are right there in the Word of God to walk around them because they might upset somebody. They might hit somebody the wrong way. I and every preacher need the wisdom and the grace of God to know what to say, and then we need the fortitude and the boldness of the king to actually say it, come what may. Please, keep me in your prayers. For what you and I, what we as congregation need most of all is to hear the words of the King. All the words, nothing cut out, nothing short-souled. For His words are the only words to live by. And the words of the King, they will be rejected by some. Let's make no mistake and it's when the gospel faces opposition, it's when the preaching encounters resistance that we need to stand fearless in our conviction. For in the strength of the Spirit, Peter and John, they, they confront the Jewish authorities with their sin, with their civil crime, actually, even though it could mean death for Peter and, and John. As readers of Luke's gospel, we already know their crime, right? Their crime as civil authorities was that they broke their own law. They broke God's law by murdering an innocent man. Pilate had declared Jesus innocent of all charges. There was no reason to put him to death. But they did anyway. 
So Pilate has his share of guilt, but so were the 71 men. So had the 71 men of the Sanhedrin their share of guilt. What do Christians do when the civil authorities break the civil and divine law? Well, they speak up. Isn't that what God sent the prophets to do all throughout the Old Testament? Nathan confronted King David with his adultery. A man of God later faced King Jeroboam with his idolatry. Elijah boldly marched into the throne room of King Ahab and denounced him for his wicked ways. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when they were pressed, they respectfully rebuked the Gentile king of Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar, for his offense against God. And Daniel, later in that book, chapter 5, he did the same with Belshazzar. You keep your gifts, Belshazzar. I'll tell you the meaning of the writing on the wall. I don't want your gifts. You who have offended the Lord Almighty with your ways. Even John the Baptist had to rebuke King Herod for his illicit marriage of having his brother's wife as his own wife, and he was put in prison for it. So prophet after prophet, and now apostle after apostle, equipped by the Spirit of King Jesus, they are not afraid to speak truth to power. They've always done that. They're not afraid to be the messenger of the Lord to speak to the corrupt authorities. And while you and I are not apostles... Are we not all anointed with the Spirit of Christ as prophets? Are we not called to confess Christ, to, to promote His kingdom in every area of life? If the church does not speak up for the cause of Christ in this world, also when it comes to the civil authorities, if the church doesn't, who will? And the apostles, they do this fearlessly. First, they point-blank accuse the Jewish authorities of crucifying Jesus. And then they add, verse 10, whom God raised from the dead. Now, it's hard to know which of those two statements would have angered the Sanhedrin more. Everyone knew that they had sentenced Jesus to die and that they had prodded Pilate to have Him crucified. But they could justify their action by saying, well, Jesus was a blasphemer he was a troublemaker for Israel. We had to get rid of him. But what they couldn't, under, uh, couldn't stand was the idea that this Jesus whom they had put to death is said to be alive again. They had wanted him gone, but these men of Galilee are teaching and preaching that he is alive and well, and thousands are flocking to their word more than in the days of Jesus on earth. And that Jesus is building up the true church, that Jesus is laying the foundation of the true temple of God, the true Israel, that was something they couldn't, they couldn't stand either. And that's an implication they would have drawn from Peter's words in verse 11, where he alludes very clearly to Psalm 118, which we sang and which we will sing it was a psalm well-known among the Jews and especially among the Jewish leadership, a psalm which they had heard quoted to them, to them before by Jesus Himself. That's what we read from Luke 20. Jesus spoke a parable against the rulers, against the Sanhedrin. 
They were the wicked tenants who rejected all the overtures of the owner. Even the son of the owner was rejected, and they threw him out of the vineyard and had him killed. And when the owner of the vineyard, that's God, when, when Jesus says that the owner of the vineyard came and put the, the tenants to death and let the vineyard out to others, the Jews listening to Jesus, they react with unbelief. May it never be. And then Jesus says, may it never be. What then does this mean? Psalm 118, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That's what's going on here. Sanhedrin, you reject me, but I become the cornerstone. The author of Psalm 118, we don't have time to go into it all, but just very briefly, it, he's a royal figure. The, the author's unknown, but very likely David fits very much with David's calling and David's life. And in that psalm, he's attacked not only by enemy nations, but he's also rejected by the leaders of his very own people whom he poetically describes as builders, the builders, that the, the, the stone that the builders have rejected. So in, in David's context, in David's life, you could think of people like Saul and all of his supporters. They were the leaders of Israel in the day. They were the builders of Israel who rejected David, but who later were rejected by God, you recall. And now the Messiah fulfills that prophecy of Psalm 118. He is rejected by the Sadducees, by the Pharisees, by all the, the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, all the rulers of Israel. The chief priests, you see, they fancied themselves guardians of God's house, guardians and builders of God's temple. But Peter is saying to them, this very stone you have rejected, God is using to build another temple, a better temple, and Jesus Christ is that cornerstone. These men steeped in the Scriptures and remembering the parables of Jesus, they, they would have gotten that inference right away. And that would have infuriated them. Jesus of Nazareth. That upstart rabbi whom we put to death is God's chosen Messiah to raise up a new people of God. You say Jesus is the key stone, the most important part of the foundation upon whom God is, is building a new temple? Impossible, outrageous, preposterous. And yet for all their reaction, it is 100% true. Peter fearlessly presses his point, verse 12, and there is no salvation, or there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. He's talking to the leaders of the Jews who knew the name Yahweh. He's saying to them, you know the name Yahweh, but if you don't know the name Jesus, you're not saved because Yahweh sent Jesus. Jesus is Yahweh, and if you reject Jesus, you're rejecting Yahweh. 
Peter says to them very boldly, fearlessly, unless you repent and embrace Jesus as Messiah, you don't have Yahweh and you can't be saved. It's one of the most clear texts in the whole Bible that the way of salvation, the way to salvation is exclusive. There is no other avenue than by faith in Jesus Christ. That doesn't play very well, does it, in our modern culture here in Canada? Our fellow Canadians get upset if we say that Christianity is the only true, legitimate religion. If we talk like that, they regard us as intolerant, narrow-minded, bigoted. If we say to them that being a Jew or a Muslim or a Hindu will not save you, they get irritated, to say the least. People get ticked off when we say things like, your good works, your philanthropy, being recognized as a great humanitarian, that's not going to take your guilt away before your maker. It gives you no status in heaven. They think we are spiteful and hateful to say that worshiping the spirits of ancestors is useless, believing in the great spirit in the sky or Mother Earth, that that's empty and vain. But when we hear the reaction of those people, two things we have to keep in mind. This is not what we say. This is what Jesus the King says. We're just passing it on. It's right here in Scripture. There's no other name. Jesus says that. And the second thing to keep in mind is it's truth. It's truth because it comes from above. The Creator Himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the only God that's real, that actually exists, He proclaims this to us. And now, through us, it is proclaimed to the world that the one true God has provided salvation. He's actually opened up the door to the complete forgiveness of all our sins and everlasting life with God. We can have it all, but to have it, You've got to come to Jesus, only Jesus. The leaders of old Israel tragically show that they are not willing to come to Jesus. 5,000, Luke tells us, 5,000 men from among Israel more broadly did come. So the Lord is gracious. He's restoring a remnant. He's bringing a remnant out of the old Israel, gathering them to become the new Israel. 5,000 men plus perhaps women and children. The apostles standing before the Sanhedrin, they have the proof that Jesus is living. What proof? Well, it's the lame guy. Well, the ex-lame guy, standing there. It says in our text that he's actually standing right with them. This man had been lame since birth for more than 40 years then. He was healed of his lameness in the name of Jesus. How can a man be fully healed 
and restored to perfect health in the name of Jesus if Jesus is not alive, if Jesus is not reigning on high, if Jesus is not the Messiah He always claimed to be. You can't have a, a man healed in the name of some dead guy with no power. The healed man is proof positive that the word proclaimed by the apostles is 100% true. They hear the preaching and they see the evidence and yet the leaders of old Israel turn away from Jesus. But we will not turn away, will we, beloved? We will not turn away. Where would we go if we left Jesus, the cornerstone, if we left His church, if we left the apostolic foundation? Where else could we go to find the words of life? There's only the one way. That's why the apostles led by King Jesus are so determined to keep on preaching even if it means they have to resist, even if it means they have to defy the civil authorities. That's what the Sanhedrin is, the civil authority. It gives them a direct command, verse 18. They are not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. So here you have civil authority commanding something that God exactly what God has, the opposite of what God has commanded. And the apostles, they answer with a timeless principle. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. They appeal to God. God is the ultimate judge of all of us. God will judge even the judges, the civil authorities. And when there is competition between what God commands of us and what the civil authority commands of us, when the latter undermines the former, followers of Jesus will obey God every time. You know, the apostles, they are bold in this. They, they could have done things differently than they did. They, they could have ventured out of Jerusalem. The Sanhedrin was centered in Jerusalem. They didn't really go too far abroad. They certainly didn't go to Galilee, that despised area of the land. The apostles could have gone to Galilee. That was Jesus' home base. They, couldn't, they could have gotten out of the face of the Sanhedrin to to possibly avoid future confrontation with the authorities. They could have preached somewhere up in the north. In that way, they could have shown some deference to the civil authority, some kind of compromise, and still keep the command to preach the gospel. But what is it that we see them doing in Acts 5 and Acts 6 and in following chapters? They stay in the city of Jerusalem. They continue to gather in the temple in Solomon's portico, where Jew and Gentile can see them and hear them and join them, and they preach the Word of God boldly. They preach their heart out, even if it means their arrest, even if it means persecution. Come what may, they preach, and they know suffering will come. Jesus told them, 
but they are not afraid of the suffering, and neither should we be, beloved. For King Jesus is our master and our keeper, and suffering for Jesus' sake is never loss, but always gain. As King Jesus once equipped His apostles to lead His church in those early days and to lay its foundation, so He continues to lead you and me to build up the church on that foundation and to serve as, as Peter will later use the image, to serve as living stones. That's his first letter. Living stones within his temple. If we truly believe in the name of Jesus, the cornerstone, if we rely upon him with our heart, he will not fail to keep us together boldly proclaiming and fearlessly maintaining the good news of salvation by grace alone, in Christ alone, by faith alone, come what may. Amen.